Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. One of the biggest problems for the non-expert trying to get the inside scoop on a specific research area is the question of trust. How do you know that you're getting the straight goods on what's really going on? Is that popular science book you've picked up written more with an eye towards sensationalizing our state of knowledge, or perhaps lack of knowledge, in order to become a bestseller? Or maybe the author's motivations are all about pushing his own particular research agenda, or those of his friends. Ironically enough, in my experience, very often the best way to get an honest and candid appraisal of the strengths and weaknesses of a particular field is to talk to people who haven't written a popular book and are simply trying to do their work. Which brings me to University of Pennsylvania theoretical physicist Justin Curry. I had the pleasure of coming to know Justin years earlier when he was a young faculty member at Perimeter Institute, and I knew that he would unhesitatingly give me a candid and honest appraisal of his sense of what it was like to be a frontline cosmologist today. And he certainly didn't disappoint. I wanted to ask you about your origins, as it were, back in in your personal time. Right. how you got interested in not only physics, mm-hmm. um, but particularly cosmology. Right. Um, so maybe you can just... So I, I, you know, I, uh, I come from a rather modest background. I don't come from an academic family. Uh, I, I grew up with my mom and my grandmother. And, uh, you know, although they were not academics, they, they were always, in, you, know, they're the, you know, my mom still is, of course, incredibly curious. And I think that's the most important uh, aspect of my childhood. You know, we would buy new encyclopedia, new dictionaries, illustrated dictionaries. My grandmother was incredibly uh, curious. And, and I fed off from that. I, you know, and and in, my, in my family, there was a sense of pride that schooling was important and doing well at school was important. So, so that was certainly very important. Of course, as a young child, like you, Howard, I'm sure, uh, you know, my, my, my goal was to become a hockey player. <laughs> <laughs> and then I quickly realized I couldn't skate, <laughs> so I had to do it. To You're look pretty good something. with street hockey, I remember oh, well, that. Yeah. <laughs> That's right, without skates. But, uh, but then, you know, to, to be honest, uh, in high school I had different passions. I, I loved music. I went to a music school um, back then. I, I, I loved the piano, uh, but I also loved science. And, and, and ultimately it was sort of a practical thing where, you know, practicing the piano uh, for an hour was incredibly painful, <laughs> even though I loved it. While doing physics homework and math homeworks was sort of, you know, fun, even for a number of hours. Um, but also the other, the other interesting thing is, you know, the power of communication, like what you're doing, for example, is I remember as a child being, you know, highly influenced by a documentary on Einstein's life. And that really, you know, his discovery of relativity and the impact it had on society. And I just remember back then, this had a huge impact. And, and I guess the romantic view of trying to, you know, seek the fundamental laws of the universe has, you know, stayed with me ever since. And, you know, here I am now, and 
You know, I still think, okay, I teach general relativity, I teach Einstein's theory uh, tomorrow in my classroom, and, you know, after this interview, I'll go to a cafe and think about those things, and, you know, I'm paid for this, which is incredibly fortunate, so. Academics like to complain, but <laughs> once in a while, we have to step back. But that's why I'm talking to you, because yeah. you're, not, you're not of that mold. <laughs> But, but interesting, this documentary, I want to pick up a little mm -hmm. bit on that, because yeah. uh, one could imagine you listed curiosity, wide interest, music, and so forth, and hockey, and all the rest of that. Maybe at some point you might have thought of combining all of these things. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but so why physics and mathematics in particular? Was it that you, you, you felt that you had uh, a, a specific orientation or ability or love for it? Or was it more this chance meeting with this documentary and, and events like that? Yeah, it was a few random events. So this documentary in particular, and then again, the power of high school teachers. Everybody, you can talk to anybody in the field, and they've all had one influential, at least one influential high school teacher. And I think in high school, I was uh, in modesty relatively good in, in French. I was, I was better in French, I think, than I was, uh, than I was in, uh, in math and physics. But I had one teacher who sort of pushed me and, uh, and made me realize I, you know, I could do math better than I could do you know, French literature. So I think it, you know, the power of teachers, it's, it's incredible. And, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and that really sort of channeled me towards, um, towards, towards physics. Now, why maybe physics as opposed to biology or some other field of the natural sciences? I don't know. I always liked, I guess what I liked about physics uh, is that, you know, it went to the, to the deepest fundamental level of nature. And it, it, was, it was also incredibly uh, incredibly quantitative that you know that, that that's something I always like that you know if I do an exam and I get the right answer they can't take points off right <laughs> if it's an English essay it's at the hands objective uh, right. you know hands of, of a professor so for me that was always something appealing that I could get somehow my grades were in my own hands which is a very practical thing but uh, at some level it's true yeah. And when you, when you went off, so uh, you had this formative influence by your high school physics teacher mm -hmm. um, who both encouraged you to plunge into mathematics and physics at a higher level and also discouraged you from devoting a life to French <laughs> literature. And I'm forever grateful. <laughs> Uh, and then, and then you went off where you 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 went. So then I went uh, I went to McGill as an undergrad, and uh, so that, you, sorry yeah. I should have asked you from yes. the beginning. So did yeah. you grow up? Did you grow up in Montreal? Or did no, you grow actually, up in, I grew, grew up, up in, in Sherbrooke, oh, right. which is a town uh, uh, closer to the border of the United States, about a hundred uh, hundred miles south. And uh, uh, so then I went to college at McGill University. And that I that I that, that I, I I remember as being pretty hard actually. So I, I you know I was never the the the, the child prodigy that uh, you know got into college and scored the best you know by far the best grades with easiness and and you know I wouldn't have won the Olympiads for example not at all. But uh, but you know I, I tried physics. I thought it was the thing. Anyway, if it didn't work, I would do something else. But I, I really loved it. I had a passion for it. And and uh, you know looking back at it. You know, when, from the perspective of a young person at the time, uh, you know, you think about academia in general, or say doing professional life in physics or in math, or you think it's all it's all talent, right? You think, oh, you know, let's do the initial conditions, then let's see who scores the highest in these exams, and this is the person who succeed. And the fallacy there, of course, is that you think of it as a pure talent, but in fact. First of all, it's a marathon, right? It's a long just to, to think about the fact that it takes ten. 15 years from that point on until you're sort of a settled professor, it's incredible. Most people will give up, right? So, 
So I think uh, looking back at it, I think you know it's a, it's really a question of determination <laughs> as much as right. I mean you have to be good at calculus, but then again a whole lot of people are good at calculus. Mm -hmm. So the, so so you have to you just have to keep on plowing, uh, and and that's all passion. So I think. Uh, um, but McGill was difficult. McGill was difficult from that point of view, I think. It was, it was a lot of hard work. Um, and then I got to Princeton for graduate school. And then somehow things clicked. I think, uh, so I think probably the, the, the transition is from the modus operandi of saying, I have to solve problems that are given to me, to the modus operandi of having to find your own problems, which is what research is all about. And I think when I made that transition, somehow that's really when I felt the most uh, comfortable. So I want to I wanna get back to that. But before yeah. I do, um, some of the things you said made me think of a, of a few anecdotes in terms of people imagining that it's all just talent, but it, it, there's an awful lot of work and calculation that goes on. I had a, a conversation with uh, David Pulitzer at Caltech uh, uh -huh. some, some, uh, some months ago, and um, he was talking to me about his experiences with Feynman, and I'd heard, mm. I'd heard other, uh, <laughs> uh, other examples of this as well. So there's this mythology of Feynman, of course, that Feynman could do everything and he could solve every problem and he was so incredibly broad. Okay. And he was, of course, remarkably broad in his interests. He was interested in so many different things. But what uh, David told me is he said that he learned that what would happen is when he would ask Feynman a problem, Feynman would go back and he would look at his notebooks and he had just a ton of these things, apparently, that he was calculating all these things all the That's time. Right. So the reason why there was a sense of this inhuman-like intuition that this guy had was he'd worked through the he bloody thing. He, right. he'd, he'd had That's it over right. here and over there, and he did it when he was sitting in a cafe somewhere or whatever. He had he'd been constantly working and developing this, this sense right. of, of what works and what doesn't work and actually making real calculations. So I think there's this mythology that, That's right. that oh, it's all, there are the few geniuses that just have it like this, but not in my experience. That's and, right. And if it doesn't apply to Feynman, it's hard to know who it would apply to. <laughs> That's right, yeah. There are these rules of number of hours that all the, you know, the, 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 the leading sportsmen or the leading right. academics, they, they all work very hard. Right. This Malcolm Gladwell That's right. The, 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 whatever That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, so uh, let, let's talk about when you went to Princeton and, and pick up on what you said before about your, your research and plunging into the world of research. But I also want to talk a little bit to cosmology. Mm -hmm. um, and before I do, I'll, I'll say one thing, which is you mentioned um, getting in the perspective of a, of a young man, but um, you're still a young man. So, you. <laughs> <laughs> so relax. Okay. Uh, but when... when I was a younger man when I was uh, uh, an undergraduate. I remember taking a course in uh, astronomy, general relativity, these various courses, and cosmology was looked upon as this. Uh, it was looked it was looked askance upon. There was this sense mm -hmm. that cosmology was, was sort of philosophy. It wasn't mm -hmm. to be taken seriously. It wasn't mm -hmm. real science. That people had worked mm -hmm. out there were these you know Bianchi seven, Bianchi nine, these sorts of <laughs> things that were out there. There were these possible views, but you know right. serious scientists didn't take that stuff That's very right. seriously. And right. and as a as a physicist, you should actually be devoting your time and attention towards uh, science, mm -hmm. which was uh, either incredibly rigorous mathematically uh, or and or something which had all sorts of empirical mm -hmm. uh, tie-ins to mm -hmm. it that you could actually do some calculations. And it was looked right. upon as this, as this quaint area that most of the fundamental work had sort of been done. 
uh, in terms of mathematical modeling, and that there was all there was to it, and maybe in seven or eight thousand years we might have some, <laughs> some answers. Sense. Is the universe open? Is it closed? Is it flat? There was this kind of thing, and uh, you right. throw up your hands, and well, that was it. Right. Um, and one of the most remarkable things uh, sociologically is seeing uh, that that view changed so drastically mm. to the extent that it not only became an active field, but the active, the most dynamic, well, maybe you, you won't say that because you're a polite fellow, but certainly one of the most dynamic areas mm -hmm. in scientific activity and just the profound transformative level of understanding that we have That's now right. of, of the early universe compared to 30 years ago. It's, it's, it's completely different. It's, it's day and night. But so, you, and were, you, you were, weren't a student 30 years ago. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I, can't, I can't actually remember. I was, no. I was slow. Yes. I might have been, no, no. It might have been developing and I was missing it. That, that probably is what was happening. But, um, but uh, just to set yeah. the stage, because for, right. for you this was just a, must have been a fantastic time to be entering the field. You're, as, as most successful people, one of the most important things is, is good fortune and good timing, and you seem to have had it. That's right. So, so I, yeah, I completely agree. But, uh, the field has changed even in, say, the 15 years I've been in it. That, uh, you know, it's become really a very quantitative science with a lot of observations, so it's incredibly exciting. And these wild ideas that people had 30 years ago are now uh, being tested and being ruled out by the data. So it's incredibly, incredibly um, gratifying endeavor. Um, at the same time, though, uh, there's a price to pay to that, which is uh, I do uh, think about although I wasn't there, that, you know, 30 years ago, the field was more of like the Wild West. You know, people were coming up with crazy ideas and, and people were sort of accepting of those ideas at some level. And, uh, and one of the, one of the downside of, of having all this data and, that, you know, the, the, the science maturing, if you want, is that uh, it's also become more conservative. And, and maybe that's a good thing. I mean, we want to converge at some level, but... Uh, but there is a worry now that it's become, in my sense, perhaps less accept, definitely less accepting of, uh, of new ideas. And uh, um, because new ideas are never nicely packaged, right? When they come out, sure. they're, they're, uh, you know, they're ill-formed, typically. And uh, if they're constantly being shut down, then uh, we may be missing on something. Uh, and, uh, and, and so that's one thing that I've definitely observed from the time I was a graduate student. You know, we came up with this crazy idea about the early universe back then and uh, and at the time you see this was more or less not accepted but it, you know there was some open-mindedness about it whereas nowadays 15 years later such an idea would be uh, it would be much harder to to to, to propose it and, uh, and is, is that i mean there are two possibilities for that mm -hmm. what presumably well maybe there are more than two but two mm -hmm. two, two come mm -hmm. to mind so mm -hmm. one is that um well there's more data there there and so there are there are all sorts of ways by which we can rule things out and we can rule them out at an right. earlier time period. But the other, which I think you're getting to, mm -hmm. is that that leads to a different mental conditioning mm -hmm. uh, insofar as uh, people might be narrowing their focus to say, well, hold on, we shouldn't really be engaging in these wild speculative quests. We should only be thinking about things that explore this particular set of data or these particular ideas or, or, that's right. or, or something that's a little bit more, like you say, uh, that, that that's more conservative in terms of Fundamental outlook, fundamental approach. Yeah, so let's let's take an example. For example, dark matter and dark energy. Right? We don't we don't know what 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 these entities are, but uh, but there's a proposal out there, right? Which is that dark matter are weakly interacting particles, and dark energy is a form of vacuum energy, and those ideas by you know by and large work well against the data, um, and so now there's a sense 
uh, a fairly you know common sense that that uh, that you know the the, the field is in, in is in this butterfly collecting mode. Uh, we're just gonna you know cross the t's, dot the i's, and and we're reaching the end. And of course, that's a very uh, that's a pitfall, as we know from history, <laughs> that uh, um, one has to be careful. Um, and it may be so that this is what dark matter and dark energy is, but it could be that you know we're in for some surprises. And uh, and and I think it's I, I think the conservatism is both driven by data, as as you're saying, and also from uh, the theory being more uh, the theoretical ideas being more refined, which is a good thing. So people have higher standards of aesthetics for the theories we write down, um, and and that's a good thing. But I but I think. For my sense, the pendulum has swung a bit too far in that direction. I think we should be on but minded, given that we don't know what these phenomena are in truth. Yeah. Uh, so, 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 yeah. so let, let's let's talk a little yeah. bit more uh, more concretely about yeah. some of the ideas that you were involved with, and then I want to get back, of course, to dark matter and dark energy, yes. and I yes. want to be focusing on, as I promised, I would. What's keeping you up at night? And, yes. and, 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 and <laughs> many things. <laughs> Physics for the mortgage. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, let's let's walk through some of your work and some of the things that you were uh, uh, that you have been involved in that you are involved in now. Because uh, another aspect that I want to highlight is to give people a window into the world of of what a a practicing uh, theoretical scientist, theoretical cosmologist, is doing mm -hmm. uh, right. all day long. What What do you guys do? It's a right. It's a constant question. I remember <laughs> years ago I was asked, "There's this big building. What, what are people <laughs> what actually are doing?" doing? <laughs> <laughs> but, but they seem to be paid reasonably well. They're happy. They, they come out at, in the early morning, and they, they they go in in the late afternoon. And what's happening in between? Um, so so I want to get to that. And by way of illustrating that. Let's talk. Let's go back to your PhD mm -hmm. uh, and your work there. You mentioned the research. Let's talk a little bit about these crazy ideas, these ekpyrotic ideas, and, and, right. and other ideas which may or may not be crazy, and and give me a sense of some of the things that that you've been working on uh, in terms of uh, what your research was and what you were looking for and the results that you found. So, I, when I was a PhD student, I started out uh, first in string theory. Uh, that was at the time in the late '90s. That was the hottest. Uh, thing in theoretical physics, um, and uh, but personally, I had a growing sense that okay, this is very interesting, but it's not directly tied to data, and that that sort of left me a little bit unsatisfied. Uh, and then, yeah, sort of serendipitously, I I, I came across uh, my advisor Paul Steinhardt, and he's a wonderful, wonderful man, and and he was working at the interface, if you want, of particle physics and cosmology, and uh, and at the time, we you know there was a sense that you know. Uh, String theory was maturing as a science, and it could have something very important to say about the universe, about cosmology, and uh, and and that was the that was what motivated us. And uh, and Paul had been working on this idea that maybe you know the universe or the Big Bang as we know it arose from a collision of of brains in some extra dimension. So these surfaces that would slam into each other, and that would be these are A N E S. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and uh, and. Uh, and, and and so that 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 was an interesting that was very inter that was a very exciting quest. I mean, this idea was uh, was definitely provocative, um, and uh, and you know ultimately the initial theory that we had in mind, uh, you know, maybe was not successful in the way we had anticipated. But it was certainly a very fun endeavor to think. I mean, I think the motivation was if you look back in the '60s and '70s, there were huge huge development in particle physics, and then that immediately fed into cosmology not long thereafter. And we had this hope that you know maybe something like that would happen with string theory, and uh, 
uh, yeah, so that, that's what motivated us. And then, yeah, this idea of ekpyrotic, <laughs> ekpyrotic universe. Um, so what, where, yeah. Tell me a little bit about where that word comes from, or tell, tell people what... Uh... Ah, so, very, so, um, so we were looking, so we had this theory sort of in place of these colliding brains, this fiery event, and uh, we were looking for a name. And, and as you know, there's a lot of marketing going on in theoretical <laughs> physics. If you don't have a good name, you're not going to get citations for your paper. Uh, so Paul, being acutely aware of this, uh, he actually went to uh, classics professors in Princeton and described to them really? the scenario. And... Uh, and remarkably, they realized it reminded them of ekpyrosis, which was a, a model of the Stoics of cosmology in which the universe would arise out of a great fire. And in fact, this fire would, uh, uh, would, would could occur periodically. So, um, so we thought that that was a good name. For other people, it reminded them of some uh, skin disease, like cirrhosis. But anyways, <laughs> we were... We were the, <laughs> that's right. People made fun of us at some level. But <laughs> okay, so, so you, you, you have this theory, and you, uh, and you, you have this, uh, this, this questionable and possibly advantageous name associated with this theory. Um, and then the question is, Again, if I'm sitting uh, on the outside looking in and I say, well, okay, how do you know if, if this theory is right? And, and, and how long does it take you to come up with these particular ideas? And what are you actually doing when you're writing these, these specific papers? Because that's the, right. I can imagine sitting back and saying, well, you know, there are these things called brains and they smash together and that's, that's it, right. that's my paper. There we that's go, I'm right. done. <laughs> but it's a little more than that. It's a little more than that. Uh, so, they, you know, we know, uh, you know the, the biggest uh, obstacle to making this work was to... Um, get a uh, spectrum of fluctuations of these brains as they collide. So we had in mind that as these brains collide, the colli if they were exactly flat and parallel, of course the collision would be simultaneous, and you would get the same temperature everywhere in the universe as the universe reheated. But, uh, but of course, as the brains come together, they will have ripples because of quantum mechanics. And so in fact, the collision will happen at different times on different places of the universe, which today would appear to us as different regions having slightly different temperature. And that's what we observe in the cosmic microwave background. So the biggest challenge was to actually compute how these, to calculate how these fluctuations look like and whether they would actually match what we observed in the microwave background. And that's what I spent, I remember, afternoons just working out days and days of working out calculations. And in retrospect, it was a really risky project. In fact, uh, in fact I know Paul had uh, qualms about giving this project to a student because he felt, okay, this student is clearly devoting 100% of his time for a year or more than a year and if it doesn't work, which could have happened, then you know the, the thesis would have been delayed by a considerable amount. So I, really, I took a risk in some sense, but I thought uh, it would be a good reward if it worked out. And in the end, I remember the afternoon when I did the computation and, uh, and, and, and it all worked out, it seemed at the time, that you know, we got a spectrum that had desired properties and uh, that was very exciting. I remember I still have the notebook with the equations boxed a few times where uh, I realized and. Uh, I realized vividly, I remember vividly that when I, when I went home that day, I, I knew that the, that, that the calculation had worked. And tell me a little bit more about the cosmic microwave background. Uh, right. Talk a little bit more about this and talk about, um, uh, well, a little bit more details about this, the, the matching that you were actually able to do in terms of the, the features of the, of the, of the CMB and, and what's actually going on. So okay. the, Let's start way back at the beginning, a very, right. very brief crazy of what this thing actually is. That's right. Uh, for someone who doesn't know anything about it and, and what we've learned about it and how that fit into your research. So the microwave background really is the, uh, is the, uh, the most important piece of information we have um, that really led to this dramatic 
uh, growth of the field in the last uh, 20, 30 years. And so what we have at our disposal is, uh, is basically the universe, as the universe cooled, cooled down, as it was expanding, uh, eventually it was cool enough to form neutral hydrogen. So protons and electrons combined to form neutral hydrogen. And at that point, the universe became essentially neutral. So all of a sudden, light photons could propagate over large distances unimpeded. So we have this beautiful snapshot of the universe, of this distant light, this relic light from the early universe, from when the universe was 400,000 years old. Of course, now it's 14 billion years old. So it's exactly, it's, it's the equivalent of having the picture of a fetus uh, for a person who's, a, who, who, who's an elderly person. So it's an incredible, incredible amount of information. One thing we learned from the CM, from microwave background is that it's incredibly isotropic. So you look in all directions in the sky, the temperature is the same in one part in 10 to one part in 10 to the 5. So it's incredibly the same in all parts of the sky, which tells us the universe back then was incredibly homogeneous. But uh, these tiny fluctuations uh, in temperature, as you look in different places in the sky, they have particular correlations among them. They're not completely random. And so we can... Uh, you know, our theories cannot predict the exact pattern that we see, but statistically it can. We can say certain things about that. Uh, and one of the things we observe is that these fluctuations in the temperature, in one part in 10 to the 5, they're correlated in a way that is independent of scale. Meaning, if you take a picture of the microwave background, if you were to zoom in and zoom in and zoom in, you would see statistically the same pattern. And that's a remarkable feature of the universe. That's a very hard feature to... Uh, you know, to, to understand from theory. So, of course, where these, where these, in homo these temperature and homogeneities came from, well, we think they pretty much came from the Big Bang, or some event uh, near the Big Bang, or in the case of the theory we were proposing, this would have been the result of an event before the Big Bang, right? This, this brain collision. So the big challenge in these calculations, if you say you come up with a theory, or anybody comes up with a theory of the early universe, is how did you, how did these initial temperature uh, perturbations uh, come about, and why are they? Why do they have this feature that they're invariant on their scale? Uh, that's the hardest thing to right. uh, to come up with. Um, so with these brain collisions, that's that's the goal. That was that's what I was trying to accomplish, and uh, and the speculation, of course, is that you know these brains approaching each other. This is all taking place before the Big Bang, and normally you would say you cannot describe the universe before the Big Bang. Big Bang is the place where uh, the laws of physics as we know them should. Uh, cease to hold, and uh, so we had to make some speculations. But you know, based on some uh, educated guess as to what would happen, we could at least say how a spectrum of brain fluctuations would translate into a, a temperature fluctuation spectrum in the microwave background. And picking up on what you yeah. were saying earlier, um, if I understand what you were saying correctly, there's a sense that those speculations that you were indulging in, um, even even before you had any, any sense of data to be able to support them to any, in any way, shape, or form, mm -hmm. there seemed to be a greater tolerance to the ability to, to, to do that, based upon what you were saying before about the sociology. Is that, is that fair, or is that... That's is completely it? fair, I would say, yes. Yeah. And, I, and I've had discussions with, uh, with, other, uh, some, with some of my colleagues, and, uh, and there's definitely this sense that uh, the community as a whole is becoming more conservative, and I think that's a worry, because especially... Uh, I mean, we all know how academia, academia works. It's a hierarchy. It's a pyramid, right? You have a hierarchy. Your, well, <laughs> you have this. Who knew? Yeah. Who knew? Exactly. <laughs> the, you know, you're a young student and a, or a young postdoc fighting for your life to get the next job in a year or two, right? And eventually to make it to make up to a professorship. How do you do that? Well, you have to impress the older folks. 
how do you impress the older folks? You impress them if they're open-minded. Uh, and not to say that, you know, of course, some of the old, my older colleagues are very open-minded, in fact. But, but I'm, on average, let's say, uh, right now, if you're a younger person, it's harder to, uh, to propose ideas. And, 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 and we have to be humble. I think that what we do is, uh, although connected to data, as we just said, but it's still highly speculative, right? We don't know for sure. Right. I mean, we, we have to have this sense of humility. Do we know that dark matter really exists? Do we know that dark energy really is vacuum energy? Do we know that the early universe came out of something that happened shortly after the Big Bang? Cosmology is a fossil science, right? It's, it's, so we see evidence right now of something we're trying to make up the story that led to what we observe today. And so I think, uh, I think like I said, I think the, the, maybe it's a natural pendulum swing that before it was the Wild West and now we're in this conservative swing and, and uh, but, I, but I hope there will be a, a market correction that we're going to go back to a, a sort of a, a more, it's important because the, the, the new ideas will come from young people, right? It's, it's, yeah. it's usually the case. Young, young people will transform the field. And, uh, and it has to be, I, I don't want to be in a situation where we say 100 years from now, we discover what the correct theory was and we realize, oh, this young person back in 2014 had that idea, we ignore this them. young student, and we ignore them. Yeah. We shut them down. And there, there are examples of that in history. I just hope we're not like that. Yeah. It's also interesting, um, I think a point worth emphasizing that you made was that at the, at the forefront of discovery, things are messy. And, and from the student, very often, by the time it, it filters down to, to a student, you get presented with this beautiful package of discovery. It's, mm -hmm. Well, it follows like this. You know, you get, you're interested in, in uh, you take a course in electromagnetism when you're in first year or second year or something like that, and mm -hmm. you get presented with Maxwell's equations. And here's this beautiful structure of, mm -hmm. of the way this mm -hmm. particular phenomenon works. That's right. Well, of course, that wasn't actually the way it developed. This is was, this was what happens by the time it gets cleaned up and, and, right. and analyzed and put together in a very, very nice framework. And so that can be inspiring if you're a student mm -hmm. because you see this beauty and structure, but it can also be somewhat depressing because you think, gosh, I would never have been able to come up yes. with this wonderful, perfect framework. Well, of course, That's nobody right. did. That's, That's not right. the way it actually That's happened. Right. It's deceiving. Yeah. Exactly. It's deceiving. that. Uh, and now, of course, this year uh, or in the coming months, we're, we're approaching the 100th anniversary of GR, of general relativity. And that's a perfect example. Einstein struggled for a decade trying to, to, to come up with general relativity, and he had all kinds of wrong ideas. Right. He convinced himself of ideas that turned out to be wrong. Right. And... Uh, and it was not nicely prepackaged. No. At, at the end, of course, it was a beautiful output that he came up with. But, uh, but, but the process is messy. And uh, yeah, I completely agree with that. So, so let's talk yeah. about uh, dark matter and dark energy. Mm -hmm. We've thrown the terms around a lot. And I think in the public consciousness, there's sometimes some confusion because they both Thanks to you guys, start with dark, which is uh, not terribly descriptive. <laughs> That's right. This. So let's let's separate them. Let's talk a little bit in turn of, of what they mean and right. what, uh, how they came to be, what our understanding is, uh, and and then we can talk about some possibilities, some solutions, what mm -hmm. you've been working on, what mm -hmm. your gut feeling is. I want I, I'm I'm letting you know in advance that I'm going to push you, and I want to I want to know the answer from from your perspective. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I want to put you out there, and I want to hear what you have to say about this. Uh, because you're you're a bold speculative guy who's not, <laughs> not, not afraid to indulge me, as I've been led to understand. But first, what is this thing? So let's let's focus on dark matter first, and, right. and let's talk a little bit about that. So the the, the first thing to say is that uh, you know the we are an underrepresented minority in the universe. The stuff we're made of, the baryons, so the the protons, the neutrons, the electrons, only makes up five percent of all of the energy and matter that's in the universe. 
So dark matter, uh, we think, makes up 25%. Uh, so, so just, just yeah. to back up yeah. for the sake of emphasis, because I yeah. mean, this is, such, <laughs> this is such a shocking claim. That's right. Um, that uh, that I, I really think it needs to be underscored. And again, going back to the antediluvian days when I was an undergraduate, <laughs> if, if, if you were to say all of our theories of physics, all of the things we've 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 talked about, all right. everything from the standard model of particle theory to whatever F equals ma chemistry, all the rest of it, all those things, biology, right. all those things that are out there, that only at by some reasonably objective level of uh, mm -hmm. of, of discussion makes up five percent. That's right. Um, that's that's locked you up. I mean, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a humble fact, uh, and uh, but we have at least. The, for the remaining 95%, we're not completely in the dark, <laughs> no pun intended, but in the sense that, uh, so dark matter, uh, we have at least good confidence that we know what it is, okay, with some caveats that we'll get into later. But uh, dark matter in many ways behaves like ordinary matter that we're made of. It, it, it collapses under gravity, it plumps, okay, it forms structure, it forms, it, it forms you know, basically clumps that later on can form, can be host for galaxies. Um, except that it doesn't emit light. That's, of course, that's why it's dark. So, but in many ways, it, it, it is similar to ordinary matter. Dark energy, on the other hand, is completely different. Okay, and, and, and that I think we understand even less about. Okay, we'll get there in a sec. But okay. first of all, here's dark. here's my uh, okay. here's, here's my question from the gallery. Okay. So, so how do we how do we know what's there? You've just you've just told me Very that there's five percent of uh, everything that we know is that's represents right. only five percent of stuff that's out there. Uh, now you're telling me that there's this How do stuff I know out that there that's, that's dark? Yeah, absolutely. That's it. So, and that's, that's the key point, is that we only observe the effects of dark matter through gravity so far. I mean, we're doing experiments to try to detect it otherwise, but at the level of, the, of what we've understood so far, it's only through their gravitational effect. And that's a very uh, humbling thing to think about because it means that we have this phenomenon and uh, we infer, we, which, which disagrees with what we'd expect, given our theory of gravity, what we would expect... Uh, to happen, and so we infer missing matter from that. It means that we have to have incredible faith in the theory of gravity, because that's what leads us to postulate the existence of this missing matter. Uh, and, um, and, uh, and of course, the theory of gravity is, is Einstein's theory of gravity. It's beautiful. You know, we, we've, tested, we've tested it very well in the, in the solar system and in some other systems as well. But at the end of the day, it's an extrapolation. We're extrapolating a theory that works well in the solar system to galactic scales and even larger scales. Now, there are, uh, of course, examples in history of this. Uh, um, well, I should say, of course, the other option would be to say, well, maybe there's no dark matter, and maybe, in fact, the theory of gravity itself must be revised. And, and, and there are examples of, of both in history. So the most famous example, of course, is uh, there was this astronomer, Le Verrier, French astronomer in the 19th century. He, and they, at the time, they, you know, they, there was evidence, uh, observational evidence from the uh, orbital motion of Uranus which was slightly anomalous compared to what Newtonian gravity predicted. And this actually led Le Verrier and also John Adams in England to postulate that there would be another planet beyond Uranus, which they call Neptune. And indeed, shortly thereafter, they discovered Neptune. So this was a case of missing mass, and we found it, and great. It explains this gravitational anomaly that, that we were struggling with, and Newtonian mechanics was perfectly fine. The counterexample, and, and again, it involves Le Verrier, is that he, he then observed, he spent years observing the orbit of Mercury and discovered that the orbit of Mercury had also an anomalous uh, aspect to its orbit. Its, its ellipse that it was drawing around the Sun was slightly processing very slowly in time. And that was an anomaly compared to, to Newtonian gravity. 
And it led Le Verrier to postulate another astronomer to postulate the existence of another planet closer to the sun, which was Vulcan. It worked, of, worked before, so. That's right, it worked before, <laughs> right? Let's apply the same. And that turned out to be wrong, of course. Now we know the answer is Einstein's theory of real relativity. That's what leads to the percentage of Mercury. And that's an example of, you know, a revised law of gravity, something beyond Newton that actually gave the correct answer. So the question is, is what situation we're in right. with dark matter? So, so if, again, another question from the gallery. You're talking about... Uh, uh, you're talking about the theory of gravity, and you're mentioning Einstein, but I've heard, I've heard this expression, uh, Mond modified Newtonian dynamics. That's right. So how does how does the Newtonian version of gravity fit into the Einsteinian version of gravity, vis-a-vis -vis this this issue of dark matter? I mean, which gravity am I talking about? I guess would be one question if I don't know anything about this. How are these things right. linked? How is Newtonian gravity linked to Einstein gravity? Which one should I be using? And all of that. Very good. So so so. Uh, uh, you know, one of the reasons why it took so long for, for Einstein and, and, you know, physicists in general to come up with general relativity is that Newtonian gravity works so incredibly well. Gravity is very feeble force, okay? So to really see uh, the uh, imprint or the signature of general relativity, you have to go to situations where gravity is, is strong, where you have, uh, you know, so, so it would be indeed, uh, you know, near a black hole or, or on very large distances cosmologically, then you see the effects of gravity. But for most purposes, Newtonian gravity works exquisitely well. Uh, and in particular, the effect of Mercury was tiny, which is why it was so hard to detect in the first place. It's like, what, 32 arc seconds a century? Yeah, or 43 like arc seconds per second. Yeah, 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 so it's incredibly <laughs> tiny. That's right. So an arc, so, arc second is, 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 you have a degree, one degree, and it's, 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 you can chop that up into a 60th, which is a minute, and, right. then, and, and then, then a, a, a 3600th, which that's is a right. second, and that's there right. are 43 of those per century. Per century. That's right. really small. So effect. it's incredibly <laughs> precise uh, observations to come up with this. Um, and now, the uh, the Mondian uh, the Mond uh, modified Newtonian dynamics is uh, is a, is a rather uh, radical idea, which is to say that uh, in fact gravity should Newtonian gravity should be modified not in extremely in extreme regimes where gravity is strong, but rather in regimes where gravity is rather weak. In fact, so weak that we only probe it, you know, mm. at large distances from the galaxy and so forth. Not in our solar uh, environment. Not in the solar system environment. Uh, it's a radical idea, okay, and I, I have to say, but it's a, it's a, it's a proposal which says basically that uh, when you get down to very low accelerations, okay, uh, actually an acceleration which is comparable to the Hubble expansion rate uh, today, uh, when you get down to such low accelerations which occurs, uh, you know, at large distances uh, in the galaxy, that at some point Newtonian physics must be revised. And, uh, and uh, so from a theoretical point of view, it's a bit funny because normally you expect new physics or new modifications to occur when things get strong, when you go to short distances or high accelerations, and that's what happens in the context of general relativity. Here it's a very, it's a long distance, low acceleration phenomenon. It's an empirical rule, but it works amazingly well to explain the properties of galaxies. And, you know, so it would say there's no dark matter in the galaxy. Instead, there is this new law of gravity, and it works beautifully at explaining what we observe about galaxies. Which was one of the, the major telltale signs that led to the whole issue of dark matter, right? These rotation Absolutely. Curves of it's one of the, the strongest pieces of evidence we have that uh, we, we look at how uh, basically test particles, hydrogen gas, rotates around the, the, around the luminous matter, around the, around the stars, and we find that very far away from the stars, where normally you would expect the velocity to drop as you move further and further away, if, if Newtonian gravity would be correct, Instead, you tend to a velocity that's independent of distance, which is a very funny phenomenon. 
The other thing is, uh, if, if that all that if, if that's all that it was, uh, it would be pretty easy to cook up some 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 theory that would do that. But um, the other funny thing is that you know galaxies are really messy objects, right? You form stars, they emit energy. It's a very messy process to to form a, an actual galaxy. And uh, in the in the dark matter paradigm, okay, you have this this luminous matter surrounded by some dark matter halo. That's the reason why, you know, that in the center picture, that's why this dark matter halo would cause this larger velocity than what you expect. So you're, at those distances, you're completely dominated by the dark matter. Okay, luminous mass is a very tiny fraction. And then you say, um, it's a very, then there's this empirical fact, which is, which is subtle but very funny, okay, which tells you that the luminosity of the stars in here is related tightly to the asymptotic velocity far away from the luminous matter, which, you know, has to do with the dark matter. It's a correlation that goes, basically luminosity goes as velocity to the fourth power. It's a well-known empirical law. And it's a very funny thing, right? Galaxies are messy stuff. Of course you expect at some level that the more massive the galaxy is, the more luminous it is, and therefore the more dark matter there should be, and therefore the... But why to this particular fourth power? Right. And that empirical fact, uh, it's a fact, okay? So <laughs> we can't argue against it. Now, if it could be that when you do a careful enough simulation with baryons and all their messy physics and dark matter, this comes out, okay? It comes out as, a, as, a, as an emergent law, an empirical law. Or it could be, as, in, is, as is the case in modified Newtonian dynamics, that it's in fact a, a product of the theory. The theory actually predicts that this should be the case. Um, and uh, so I think, you know, I'm not myself a direct proponent of, of MON. I haven't spent years on it. <laughs> but everybody agrees as far as, you know, people who actually go ahead and fit rotation curves of galaxies, they agree that it's an amazing fit. I mean, it's, a, it's one of the most successful empirical laws in astronomy. Um, uh, I, but, 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 so I would say I, dark matter, as we understand dark matter particles, I think has a long way to go before it can, it can explain those aspects of galaxies. There's other evidence for dark matter. So that's where I think, you know, it cannot just be MON by itself. Because then you get to clusters of galaxies, you get to cosmology. And there I think the evidence for dark matter is pretty strong. At okay. least in the way we understand it. Yeah. So, so yeah. let me, I want to get there. Let me just yeah. back up for a sec. Yeah. So if, uh, just up until the, the point of the discussion we've had now, if, if you were, uh, and, and you're not claiming to be, but if you were a die-hard Mondian, as it were, yes, <laughs> uh, and and you were to say, look, here, here I have this equation. We have to modify uh, our understanding of gravity, uh, uh, these particular scales, uh, these particular accelerations, whatever. Um, and, and here's my here's my equation. Here's my framework yes. that right. I that I have. Right. And I would say to you, well, that's very interesting. Uh, but where does this come from? Where, right. where, where, where do these? Where does this equation? Where does this framework actually come from? Because That's it's right. our understanding in, in in physics, we have to have some sort of way of of putting things in their proper framework in terms of principles, in terms exactly. of background structure, in terms of fitting in with the That's other right. stuff that we know. This seems somewhat arbitrary. It fits the curve. That's very nice. It, exactly. pre it predicts this luminosity thing. That's nicer still. But, right. but where, where does it come from? And I, I, that, that is a very, that's, a, that's exactly the point. So I think at the moment, that's what's missing. Okay, so we don't have, so for example, how did Einstein come up with general relativity? So we know it, right? He, un he understood the equivalence principle. He came up with the equivalence principle. That was the guiding principle that led to general relativity. By, by, that, by itself, you can, get from, you can get to GR with that principle and, and, and special relativity. We don't have that for MON. As you said, it's kind of a cookie formula uh, that works, okay? 
But, uh, but there are various hints, okay? There are proposals out there. They're not well formulated yet, uh, but there are various uh, hints that this might be, uh, for example, that, that law, it, it, when you're in the deeply Bondian regime, has some symmetry properties to it. It's invariant mm. under scale transformations and so forth. So there's some, there's some hints mm. of something going on. Uh, and I have some wild ideas about that too, about what, why this would come about. Um, so yes, it, it, I, I completely agree. It looks at the moment just like a fitting formula, uh, but uh, incredibly predictive, but, but a fitting formula nonetheless. And, and I agree. So what we need, and, and the path that a lot of people have taken is to take that fitting formula and try to you know, fit it in with relativity and write up, you know, an equivalent to, you know, a modification to general relativity out of which this would boil, would, this would, uh, come would come out as right. in the Newtonian limit. Um, and that feels like you're trying to put, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, how do you say, a square uh, right. thing in, in a round square. hole. Right. Yeah. So, so it, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like it fits very nicely. So there has to be a deeper principle. Exactly, something that will tell us this, this is really the answer. That, that's missing. Okay, so I want to get back to this uh, because you gave me some tantalizing hints of your own the, uh, work and your own inclinations in terms of what you'd like to be doing. But, but, but before I do, getting, getting back to that, let's talk about where the dark matter regime is more successful in terms mm -hmm. of this larger scale structure that you were, you were just alluding to, that I, where I cut you off just a few moments. So, so, so the dark matter, I think, uh, so where it's most successful is uh, is on the larger scales, and in fact, you know, from from a from a, from an outsider's point of view, it's, it's it's in fact the most subtle, right? Because you know, in the in the galaxy, it's visceral; you can kind of directly see it. Cosmologically, it's more indirect, but but I would say it's the firmest evidence for the existence of dark matter. So, the idea is the following: that if you imagine, we know, as we said uh, about the cosmic microwave background, that the early universe was highly homogeneous; the density was almost the same everywhere in the universe. So, so like the the surface of the ocean is a good analogy. But it was not perfectly homogeneous. There were some regions that were slightly more dense, others that were less dense, and uh, like ripples on the ocean. And now, of course, what happened in time is that these regions that were slightly over dense, well, under the influence of gravity, they collapsed. They grew more dense. Okay, and eventually, you know, the picture is that they go so dense that you know they can they lead to the formation of the first stars, the first galaxies, and that's how we come about. So there's a theory that if you take uh, you know the stuff, the matter we know the size of these primordial inhomogeneities and the time, the amount of time that's elapsed since, we can predict, you know, did galaxies form? And if there's no dark matter, the answer is that no galaxies form. There just hasn't been enough time for things to collapse. Mm. So that's one piece of evidence. You need dark matter just from this simple argument that, you know, the dark matter, if, because of course if you have dark matter, then the gravitational wells are deeper and this process will be sped up and, and, and it'll form galaxies by today's time. Also, more indirectly, from the microwave background patterns, uh, there, there's evidence that there should be, you can also see there the evidence for ex existence of dark matter. But the key point, although, so this is, this is I, I think this is a, I think this, a theory like Mon would be hard pressed, okay, to explain those features. And that's right. my personal opinion, that I, and I think uh, works really well on galaxies, but to say that there's no dark matter whatsoever, because dark matter comes from these rather different pieces of evidence, it's very hard to imagine that a single all-encompassing theory could explain these different things. It's possible, but it's, on, in my opinion, unlikely. Okay. So, yeah. so point of clarification. Um, <coughs> if, my understanding is if I'm a Mondian, and yeah. is, do people actually use that word? Yeah, they yeah, they do. I think. <laughs> At least I do, yeah. <laughs> okay. So if, if I'm a Mondian, uh, I, at least an, an old-scale old Mondian, I would say, no, no, there's no such thing as dark matter. 
right. and, and here, here's my equation, which, which uh, this is an unnecessary hypothesis, and, I, right. and you just have to believe in my equation, and, and right. everything works out perfectly in terms of these rotation curves of galaxies and so That's forth. Right. And from what you were just saying, you actually need dark matter to be able to have this, the, the, these local collapses and the scale, the time scales that you That's actually right. need to be able to move forward. That's right. So, um, is it is it now the case that some people who would be of a Mondian persuasion would say, well, you actually need both? So there's there's not there's there is this dark matter somewhere that maybe mm -hmm. it doesn't exist in terms of my rotation curves of galaxies, but it exists at some other scale or some other level. I mean, yeah, because uh, because otherwise, <laughs> that's if a good question. If, right. if you don't yeah. say that, right, um, it, which seems to go against the basic origin and motivation of dark of of, of the Mond theory to begin with. But if you yeah. don't say that, then how do you answer this question that? Uh, that you were posing, which is you need dark matter to be able to directly demonstrate how things that's are working right. on those times. That's right. That's great. So, so I, I, of course, I can't speak for all the Mondians in the world. Well, you're, but the one I'm <laughs> you're the one I'm talking to. You're the closest right. to, to a Mondian I have right now. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a good question. So, um, so what is the attitude? So, first of all, they, they you know, they, I, to me, it's a, it's a sort of extreme point of view, right, to say that there's absolutely no dark matter. Okay. So, but I think that's pretty much the view that's being espoused by that community. Um, they need some form of dark matter, so to speak, uh, in which they, uh, they say that neutrinos are actually more massive than we think they are, which is an interesting proposal in and of itself. So it's not like they don't need any, but, but neutrinos are still part of the standard model, so it's not the way But there have been all these tests on neutrino mass. I mean, do they just say we're That's doing, right. so we're it's doing barely, them wrong? Or, yeah, or? it's barely, it's barely uh, within, uh, within, known, uh, within known experimental bounds. Okay. Now, um, that's, so now, how do they explain what I just said? Yeah. And the answer, I think, is, uh, is uh, well, it's, it's somewhat, you know, they, 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 I don't think right now there's a theory that can predict it in detail, because to explain cosmology, you need a relativistic theory. And there's been some proposals of an extension to GR that does that, but uh, it's not been successful at the level that I just said. But, okay, you know, at least the physics is, uh, you know, at least, okay, this, this Mondian gravity is stronger than ordinary gravity, so maybe at least qualitatively this could lead to the sped up. I think it's a, it, it, the, the jury is still, I, I, I think it's unlikely. They would say, oh, you know, maybe it will work out. I think this, is, this, is, this would be the attitude. That there so, still could be the option of a, of a theory better than the relativistic reason we know about that would explain this phenomenon. I see. Yeah. So, so, so yeah. if we keep working on our theory, we'll get a, a fully relativistic yeah. theory of this, and that and will that, be able to explain that's this right. at, that's at some the level. Attitude. My, you know, my attitude, if you, you know, since you're talking to me, yeah. <laughs> my attitude yeah. is, I think both of points of views are rather extreme, right? If you think about it, you say, on the one hand, it, there are dark matter particles. Only that, right? And, and, and GR, as we know it, works perfectly fine. The other attitude is equally extreme, says, well, there's no dark matter whatsoever, and it's all modified gravity, okay? And, and, uh, and why not both, okay? Of course, one could say Occam's razor and all those things, but... Why not both? I mean, there are systems, uh, you know, condensed matter systems, like uh, as we experience different phases of water, they can coexist. And it's all the underlying, same underlying physics, but their manifestations is rather different, right? Mm. So, so one of the things I've been thinking about uh, is to think of, you know, to think of the dark matter particles and the, and the, uh, and the, and the monion phase, just like we think of superfluidity in liquid helium. So liquid helium is a very well-tested phenomenon. You cool it down and eventually reach this superfluid phase. But above zero temperature, there's still two existing, two coexisting phases, the superfluid phase and the phase made of the normal fluid. Okay, and they coexist. So right. maybe it's something like that, that, that you know, it's the same underlying physics, um, but has different manifestations on different scales. And 
Of course, it's easy for me to say those words and another thing to do calculations. Yeah, but, but you're, not, uh, you're not eschewing doing calculations. I mean, you're, you're, yeah. I, I'm guessing that you're right. willing to do calculations and willing to, to develop to things and, right. and, and move forwards. Right. And this, this notion, this fundamental construct that it, it is possible to have these two things representing different manifestations of maybe some underlying phenomenon or, or mm -hmm. whatever, that, that, uh, this has been received in principle how? By some of your colleagues, so I think uh, I think it's interesting. I think uh, I think uh, the community. I've perceived a shift in perception. I think in the you know there are a number of people have become uh, more open to, the, to those ideas, and and and, uh, and I think uh, it's been driven by various uh, various developments. One of them is that dark matter experiments have not discovered dark matter particles, and they're becoming increasingly sensitive, and we don't discover them. And, and, and of course, you know, one of the leading uh, candidates for dark matter particles are these uh, weakly interacting massive particles coming from supersymmetry. It's and a now, great acronym, of course. It's a great, great acronym. <laughs> <laughs> and, but, but, but now these experiments are starting to really chop down through the parameter space uh, that would be favored by, the, by these supersymmetric uh, extensions of the standard model. So at some level, uh, there's a bit of a concern. And then we have the LHC, uh, which is very exciting. It, it's discovered the Higgs. Within the next five years, or less than that, three, three years or so, we will have you know, reached the highest energies at the LHC. And then we'll see, right? Are they discovering supersymmetry or at least new? If they discover new particles at the LHC, then I'm willing immediately, you know, okay, they're, they're, some of, one of this will be dark matter, okay? Even though you cannot say this is a dark matter particle, the fact that there are new particles out there is, is, is going to be linked somehow. So, but, uh, but say in the most pessimistic case, right, that, that, that the LHC doesn't discover anything. And, you know, so many people are starting to, there, there's no hints at the moment from what we can see that there will be new physics. And suppose the LHC doesn't discover anything in, in three, four years' time. And then suppose that the dark matter experiments still don't find anything. Then that's, this gives you pause. And I think that's been the shift in perception. It certainly influenced me and the people I've talked to as well. There's, there's a growing sense that, uh, and, and, and the other development, the other development, meanwhile, is that simulations of galaxies, numerical simulations of galaxies, are getting increasingly good? Okay, so now you can now you can actually do uh, you can throw in baryons. Okay, now of course you cannot in detail simulate the messy processes of star formation. So, so what you do is uh, you have to put these you know you, you treat the baryons essentially as a fluid, and you have to put in some parameters that that would come you know because when stars form they release energy and you know and all those things. So you put that in. And then the question is, how well do these simulations do at, you know, getting galaxies the way that we observe them? Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm certainly not a detailed expert on the simulations. I don't do them myself. But my understanding is that, first of all, you have many parameters now to deal with. That's parameterizing your ignorance about what the actual messy baryonic physics is. Right. And so they have to, you have many knobs to tweak. So it's not clear, is this working out? And, 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 and uh, you know, I think the jury is still out. So th these are the two developments that I think giving is giving some people, at least me, it's giving me a lot of pause. That, uh, um, and, and meanwhile, the evidence for dark matter from the other side, from the larger scales, is in increasingly good. So I, I, I think this hybrid viewpoint, from my point of view, is quite, uh, it's guided by the data in some right. sense. And, it, and, 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 and as, as you said, it's still in need of a good, compelling theoretical explanation. But, uh, but it's certainly worth putting time and effort in. Well, that's your job. That's my your job. Your job is to come up with... <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I mean, you'd be shirking your duty if you, right. uh, uh, you did. Okay, that's yeah. great. Let's, let's, let's talk to dark energy now. Okay. And let's talk uh, a little bit about that. Let's talk about uh, 
uh, first of all, a fairly obvious question, a question I'm sure you get a lot when you give public talks and so forth. Uh, maybe it's not as prevalent now as it used to be, but certainly a question that I used to hear a lot, which is, well, how do we know this stuff is really out there anyway? You guys talk about uh, right. you know, one day there's this and the other day there's that, and now you're telling us that there's this mysterious force out there which is uh, causing the universe to increase its acceleration. How, right. how, uh, how certain are we of this? Why, why do we know that this is actually going on? That's 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 great. Yeah. So it's it's a again it's a, it's rather indirect in some sense, right? Uh, again, through gravity. The the first thing to say is that uh, you know for, from from an outsider's point of view, the first the most surprising fact about cosmology is that the universe is expanding in the first place, right? That's the first that's the most remarkable thing, right? Gravity is attractive. Why is the universe expanding? Right? Right. The most naive thing you would expect is the universe that would be collapsing under its gravity. And of course, uh, the answer, the honest answer from cosmologists is we don't know, right? Because that, <laughs> that traces all the way back to the Big Bang, right? And we don't, we don't know what happened at the Big Bang, but really that's where the expansion started out, okay? So it's really in initial conditions. Now, uh, now it's, expand, it's been expanding ever since. And at least what we expect from gravity is that, you know, gravity would pull stuff in. So at least the expansion should slow down. And that's what we observe. At least for most of the history of the universe, the expansion was slowing down. But then the surprise comes in that, you know, about 7 billion years ago, the expansion of the universe started accelerating. Okay, so it started speeding up. And that's a, that's a big surprise, right? That's not, certainly, if you believe that it's, uh, or, ordinary matter cannot do this, because ordinary matter would make gravity attractive. There's some, some funny form of energy which is leading this acceleration to occur. And that's one way that we immediately, you know, we can tell that there has to be uh, this form of dark energy. The fact that the fact is that we, we can observe, we can measure, uh, infer the expansion rate of the universe, and that's a pretty direct, it's a kinematic, kinematical test. You can just you know, measure the expansion of the universe as a function of time, and you can see that it was, it's been speeding up for the last 7 billion years or so. So you can infer from that that there, if, if you believe, again, Einstein's theory of gravity, then there has to be some missing form of energy. And then you say, okay, why doesn't it clump? Right? That's a good question. Why is it not dark matter? So dark matter, uh, well, we, we know it cannot be dark matter because dark matter would make the universe slow down. So it has to be, so that stuff is not in, it's not collapsed in galaxies as far as we can tell. Uh, it's more or less homogeneous. And, uh, you know, the, the leading candidate for, you know, the simplest explanation would be that it's, uh, it's, it's vacuum energy, the energy of the vacuum uh, from quantum physics. That's, that's the leading uh, explanation. But, but this has problems as well, but that's the, that's the leading in some sense, simplest explanation for dark energy. So tell me a little bit about those problems and tell me, uh, let's talk a little bit about the disparity between uh, what, a, what a particle physicist might calculate in terms of um, this vacuum energy and what we, what we observe. Yeah, this is the worst failure of theoretical <laughs> physics. <laughs> so when we say vacuum energy, we have in mind that uh, these, this is the energy of quantum fluctuations in the vacuum. So in quantum mechanics, there's no perfect vacuum. Things always pop out in and out of existence uh, in the vacuum. And we can compute, uh, can calculate this energy of the vacuum from the known particles that, that we know. So every particle in the universe is described by a field, just like the electric field. And we can compute what the, these fluctuations would contribute to, to this average uh, vacuum energy. And when you do the calculation, you find that you get the wrong answer by, depending, 120 orders of magnitude is the worst failure. No, no theoretical physicist would like to talk about this. No, but I'm asking you to talk about 
<laughs> so but just, it's a, just to specify, because yeah. I mean, it's it's a, it's a colossal result. It's I mean, a it's a colossally yeah. bad result. Yes. It's a one by 120 orders of magnitude. You're talking out by a one followed by 120 zeros. zeros. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's not wrong. That's just outstandingly, remarkably wrong. That's right. <laughs> so uh, it, it, it's a, it's a big problem. Now, uh, uh, what does it mean? Now, we, one thing to say is, of course, we cannot calculate the precise answer of the vacuum energy. When I clearly. say we calculate, clearly, <laughs> otherwise, <laughs> that would be the end of it. But we can calculate, uh, because we don't know all the particles that are, are there, we don't know all the contributions to this, to this vacuum energy, but we can calculate contributions that we know, theoretically, and those are the ones that give you the wrong answer. There are two attitudes, right? So one is that we get the wrong answer, but in fact, there's another big contribution, which we can't account for, Okay, which cancels this at this amazing precision of 120 decimal places. That is essentially the conventional answer right now. There, this, this cancellation that occurs, which makes uh, anybody right, very uncomfortable that you have to, we would like our theories to be somehow natural, generic, that you don't have to tweak things to get, uh, to get, to get the universe to work out. Um, the attitude uh, in the field right now, for you know, they're, they're, I'm, I'm talking about this conventional view, is that this cancellation may not happen everywhere. Okay, that we happen to live in a special place where this cancellation occurs between these uh, these different components, and you know, if the cancellation didn't occur, the universe would be expanding so fast or collapsing so fast that we wouldn't exist. That that's an argument that's been proposed. I don't particularly find that argument very compelling. I think in, in, you know, in the history of physics, whenever we have these kinds of issues, okay, these issues where our calculations tell us something is wrong, usually it's a sign that there's new, new physics going on that we're about to discover. And that, that explains naturally what's going on. Okay, so that's, uh, that's the more hopeful, <laughs> more hopeful attitude that there has to be uh, something beyond, it may still be, you know, vacuum energy, the way I just described it. Mm. But there's something that makes it appear weak. Uh, there has to be new physics. Yeah, so again, uh, I don't want to be, these are very, very complicated issues and they've been around for some time and I don't want to trivialize them or say that people who believe one thing are, are naive or silly or anything because right. I, don't, I don't believe that. But if I'm some guy on the street and you come to me and, and you say, look, I'm a scientist. I believe, I have the answers to this, this particular regime, whatever it is. Let's not even talk right. about cosmology. Let's talk right. about something else. I, I'm, I'm going to figure out how this coffee cup works, right. Right? right? And how it slides on the table. I've got a theory to explain this coffee cup. That's right. right. And I say, okay, well, great. I'd love to hear your theory. And, and you say, here's my theory. Your co my coffee cup is actually, according to my theory, my coffee <coughs> cup is going to go upside down and it's going to go at the speed of light between here and here. It's going to turn into a frog. And, and then it's going to magically reappear here in, uh, just like this, as if you had been pushing it along at this particular rate. Right. That sounds a lot like the talks I hear at and conferences. I, and, I, <laughs> <laughs> and I would say to you, well, that's a very interesting, that's a very interesting theory. Uh, let's test it. Let's, uh -huh. let's go and do a test. Right. And I'm looking at it and I say, well, hang on a minute. It doesn't actually go at the speed of light. It doesn't turn into a frog over there. And it doesn't do all the rest of this kind of stuff. And you would say, ah, yes, yeah, well, I have an answer for that, you see. Because what's happening is there's another effect that I can't quite predict that cancels it 
turning into a frog over here, and it cancels it moving at the speed of light over there. And so what we see when we take both of these things into consideration is, is, is what's actually happening here. Right. And I say, well, I'm pretty suspicious of your theory because uh, it seems to me you can say just about anything in terms right. of what you predict. And if, and, and, and if I have a different empirical measurement, I mean, again, with okay. respect, because I realize these are very complicated no, issues absolutely. and I'm, I'm, I'm trivializing them, but I just think when you have an answer that's out, when you have a prediction that, 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 that jars with experiment to the tune of 120 orders of magnitude, Yes. To be able to say there's something else which happens to mask that. <laughs> That's no, reaching. Agree. That's re <laughs> You're reaching for something, boy. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I think... Uh... And, and that, that, that's kind of, that kind of skepticism is really healthy because we, we you know, uh, in any scientific endeavor, we get used to certain assumptions. We get used to certain things. And, and, and really, we have to step back and say, how crazy is this, right? I mean, and, 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 and are we missing an opportunity by sweeping under the rug these kinds of issues, the frog turning into a cup? Um, I, I think, uh, I think uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, it's, it's lacking a better explanation, okay? Yeah. And we have to be honest about it. So I, as a theorist, I can be honest that there's nothing at the moment that can compete with this outrageous explanation, okay? There's some ideas. But at the level of mathematical detail, there's one thing, I, I, you, know, one thing that, that you know well, but I, but I should say is that you know, we don't just ponder crazy ideas like this. We have, we have mathematical rules to write them down. We have, we have a certain set of guidelines that we believe in. And so you cannot just do whatever you want. You have to really... And, uh, and although I can say those words when I go and work out this afternoon in, on my theories, I quickly find that it's very limited what I can do. And that's why people haven't found a competing alternative. So I think there are ideas. There. I've come up with ideas about uh, alternative viewpoints of the cosmological constant. I, I mean, one of them is to, say the, is to say the following ideas. Again, just words, but I, I, you know, it's backed up by some. So when we say the cosmological constant, when we say the vacuum energy, right, we... This, this form of energy is the most homogeneous form of energy we've ever probed, okay? It's, it's homogeneous both in space and in time. It doesn't change in time. So the one thing you have to worry about is it means that you're probing through gravity the largest possible scales in space and in time because it's perfectly homogeneous, right? So do we really know that gravity works the way it does on those huge scales? And, and maybe, in fact, the following could be true, that, in fact, the vacuum energy is large, this one, you know, 120 orders of magnitude wrong answer is the correct answer, but it's the fact that how it gravitates is different than what we assumed. Maybe it actually gravitates 120 times orders of magnitude more weakly than you and I gravitate. So we've tested gravity on small scales. We know how we gravitate. We know all that. But when you get to these extremely large distances, do we really know how vacuum energy gravitates? Uh, and that's, that's one idea that, that I've explored. And that actually we can do some mathematics to back it up. It's not at the level of, of uh, again, in terms of aesthetics, in terms of control, theoretical control. It's not at the same level of this of this uh, frog to cup theory, but but it's at least more precise. Uh, in, 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 it's not just words. Um, so, so if yeah. I'm again, if I'm yeah. uh, sitting here listening to this, uh, and I think to myself, we've just talked about two major issues, two major conundrums, two yes. major unsolved difficulties. Right. Might it be the case that these things are actually related at some Excellent. point? Excellent. Yeah, absolutely. That, 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 would be, uh, that would be the most compelling answer, that somehow these vastly different phenomena somehow have a common origin. 
And that's not how we think about it, uh, how most cosmologists think about it. Uh, you know, I, again, there's a funny discrepancy between, uh, between what people talk about at conferences and the formal talks. Uh, they give talks that are rather conservative because that's how we're trained. So it's a very good trait, actually, to be, to be conservative. We're not completely wild. Uh, but then at the end of conferences, some, some, sometimes you'll have this phenomenon where somebody, you know, want to have some fun and they'll say, let's have a survey. What do we think? Let's, let's write down some options for what we think dark energy is. And then it's always startling that, you know, the way people vote is far from conservative. They vote for the ra most radical option. Now, why is this? Maybe because we have hopeful thinking, right? We don't want to put our names on a paper that's crazy, but deep in our heart, we hope that it's a radical answer, so we have more stuff to do for the next 20 years. Or it's more exciting, really. Uh, or we actually believe, we don't have an idea for how to actually explain it and write papers about it, yeah? but we have a belief that maybe. So I think uh, it depends how we phrase the question, but uh, would cosmologists mostly think it's a radical idea? I don't know. I, I think from these conferences, I, I, I think so. So it's possible that, uh, at least my personal opinion is that it will be, it will be very exciting, and I think that's my hope that these phenomena are connected. In fact, all these phenomena, this Mondian modified gravity on, on on galactic scales, the dark matter and the dark energy, are somehow again the dream is would be different phases of the same underlying stuff, right. and uh, and we have to understand it. And there is evidence, of course depending on how one interprets it, but one can certainly make an argument that there is evidence for this type of thinking successfully done in physics over the years. So disconnected phenomena, disconnected approaches that were later seen to be manifestations of the same thing. This has happened over and over again. And Absolutely. To some extent, uh, people have accused physicists of, of, of looking at that, uh, of taking that approach to the exclusion of all other approaches, that they <laughs> insist that everything has to be manifestations of the same thing. But I think th there certainly is an argument that uh, historically that this is, uh, this is something worth approaching or worth thinking about at some, at some level. Right. Um, listening to you talk about your anecdotal experience of, of the jarring between what researchers think in terms of their own personal opinions manifested in an informal vote at the end of conferences as opposed to their papers, um, uh, you know much better than I, but my own my own personal view is it's it's almost as if, um, for a moment, these researchers are little kids again. Yeah. And they're and they're right. they're thinking about the same sort of thing that got them into science, and they're they're whatever they're watching Star Trek or they're imagining all sorts of things. They're letting their imagination go completely wild. They realize right. that of course they can't do that when they're That's being right. professional scientists and when they're worried about getting you know, going through tenure and promotions and all That's the rest right. of that sort of thing. But right. but this is this is the core aspect of why they went into science to begin with to a large right. extent. That's right. And I and I and I had that at some level I had that experience with uh, with the gravitational wave discovery or, or that that happened uh, recently, which turned out to be a non-discovery. So but <laughs> but, uh, but it was interesting because that discovery of these or that, that plain discovery of the primordial gravitational waves actually ruled out these ideas of periodic universe that I was describing. So. I, I was at the, at, at the same time I was kind of torn because it would rule out all these things and confirm the you know the consensus theory which is inflation, and uh, so at some level I should have felt disappointed. At the same time I was so excited for the field that this was happening that we had this new piece of evidence about the very early universe. It trumped <laughs> my own personal interest, and uh, of course it turned out that this wasn't a discovery yet. But at least it was an interesting a personal experience to go through that. What, a, what you know. And I think the field feels that way. Ultimately, as you said, we want the greater good 
of the field. We want to be excited about nature. We want nature to surprise us. I think that's a, that's an intrinsic feeling as a scientist. Let's talk now, as I promised, as I threatened we would. Okay. Uh, I want I, I want you to lay it on the line, Justin. Okay. I I, I want to know. I want you. You've given some hints as uh -huh. as to what you what you would what you would like to see, but uh, I want you to imagine. 20 years from now, N years from now, when, when we have a deeper understanding of this, right. and we're going to compare the historical record, which will be right now, right. with our understanding N years from now, let's say 20. When yes. we, when we Can you keep this video uh, buried until 20 years that from now? Time capsule. No? Right? Well, in fact, we're... <laughs> <laughs> and you either buried it then or you promote it. But <laughs> Just wait. But, you, you, but uh, you're, you're the sort of person, as we've already established, who's so excited about learning about nature that you won't care about your opinions anymore. <laughs> but it will be useful to get, you know, whatever, maybe. I don't think they can yeah. give a Nobel Prize uh, for a discussion on a, just a, <laughs> an, a, an informal discussion on video. But they have it It's so a changing far. world. They, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I'll cite that conversation in my future papers. Okay, good. So let's have the conversation. So yeah. tell, me, tell me what we're going to find in 20 years. Uh, give me... Give me your sense of, of the answers as best as you can speculate to these okay. fundamental questions. So, so I think, okay, so I'm not going to edge my bets, but I'll tell you what I think are the two scenarios, and then I'll tell you which one I prefer, okay? So I think, I think in my opinion, there are two scenarios. There are two possible things that will happen. Either the first route is, is the one that we've been following, that it's uh, vacuum energy is dark energy. Dark matter are these weakly interacting particles. Whether we discover them or not, doesn't matter. Will, that will be the, uh, that's what data will actually tell us. Okay, that's route number one. Route number two is a radical uh, revolution in our understanding of gravity, in our understanding of what this dark stuff is. That's the other route. Okay, I don't think, to, to, be, to, to, to say why I see only these two, I don't think it's going to be a tweak. It's not going to be a tweak over what we understand. Okay, that, 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 you know, people thought a lot about tweaking things and, 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 it would be deeply unsatisfactory if it's just a tweak over the country. But also, be, yeah. presumably, people have been trying to tweak it for so long that it, that would lend you a certain amount of skepticism that it's tweakable. That's, I mean, that's right. Yeah. Why this tweak and not some other tweak? And yeah. yeah, yeah. My my money is is well, I don't I don't have any money. But anyway, the, the, <laughs> my it's more than a hope. My belief, I think, is that it's root two. I think uh, universe can still surprise us and. Uh, and I think 20 years down the road, I, I really think, in fact, this is a, it's not just a statement about 20 years. This is a critical juncture. I think right now, in you know, 2014, this, this particular period, I think we're at this juncture that, you know, we're going to, these two roads will diverge. And it will come from increasingly precise data. It will come from increasingly precise simulations. It might come from the LHC. It might come from, but I think we will know. I mean, these dark matter experiments, at some point, they reach uh, a limitation. And then we, we, I think it will, we will know for sure in 10 years even which, routes, which route we're going towards. And, uh, and I, think, I think we're moving in that direction. Cool. Advice, final question, or final, final thought for me. Uh, I'm going to give you a chance, maybe if we've missed something. But um, what advice, given that, given that that's your gut feeling and your sense, but also understanding the field nonetheless, and recognizing the spectrum of possibilities, what advice would you give towards a young person who's contemplating entering this field? Is there anything specific you would recommend if, if, I'm, a, if I'm a high school student who's listening to this and captivated by what it is that you have to say and think, gosh, I want to make some kind of contribution. I want to throw my hat in the ring. I want to plunge into this world. Um, what sorts of advice might you give that? Uh, I think, might you give her? I think they should definitely jump in. I think it's the best time 
ever to jump into this field. I think uh, precisely because we're about to enter this revolution, um, I, I, think, uh, I think we're about to experience the same sort of revolution that happened at the beginning of the 20th century with the invention of relativity and quantum mechanics. I think we're about to it. So if you're a young person, I think it's the perfect time to jump into this field and, and contribute and, and think about, think outside the box, you know. Uh, the, the problem with uh, having been in the field for, for a long time like myself is we get blasé, right? We get a bit, uh, oh, no, this, this, this idea will go away and so forth. Young people don't have that, and I, and I think that's really helpful. It's really refreshing. So, you know, don't be afraid to come in, propose, think outside the box, propose new ideas, think about, as you said, alternative systems that, you know, we've thought about in history that connect these different phenomena. And uh, we, need, we need fresh blood <laughs> in this field. <laughs> that sounds great. Is there yeah. anything, uh, anything we missed? I, I really had a great time talking yeah, to you. Is there, anything, is, is there anything you'd like to, like to add? No, I think no, it's, it's good. good. Yeah, it's very pleasant. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations about Astrophysics and Cosmology, along with separate discussions with Rocky Kolb, Roger Penrose, Paul Steinhardt, and Scott Tremaine. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com, while those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.